On April 6, 1966, at 11 a.m., one of the world's most witnessed UFO incidents began in Clayton, a suburb of Melbourne, Australia. Over 200 independent witnesses claimed to have seen up to three UFOs for up to 20 minutes in length, some within an arm's length. The UFOs are said to have left physical evidence, traveled at extreme speeds, and were investigated by the military, and the whole incident was covered up by authorities. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 2, Episode 5, The Westall UFO Sightings. It was a bright, sunny morning at Westall High School, and the late morning sports session was wrapping up on the school's cricket oval. As the children and teachers prepared to head back in, a strange object in the sky appeared, and children and teachers began to point and question. The object appeared to be a large, silver-colored disc, and it flew over the school and hovered for a moment before moving once again. Over 50 eyewitnesses indicate that the movement of the object is what perplexed them the most. They indicated it was able to float motionless and then be able to move very, very fast. Word of the strange object spread quickly and all eyes were looking up at the strange disc. Students, teachers, faculty members, local residents, and farmers all looked up in amazement and bewilderment. Jackie Argent, a 13-year-old student at the time, describes what she had seen. I watched the way it moved, which was amazing. It was capable of standing still and moving very, very fast. Claude Miller was a teacher on yard duty that morning. And unlike many colleagues, he is open to discuss what he had seen. A science teacher came rushing towards Claude to ask him if he had seen the object in the sky. And it was recess, and I was a bit late going out to do my yard duty, and when I went outside, bingo. I met Andrew coming in, and his first words were, did you see it? <laughs> did I see what? Uh, and he told me what he saw, or what he thought he saw. He said it was up there, moving at incredible speeds. As the object appeared, witnesses began to see several light aircraft flying in the vicinity and appearing as if they were either trying to capture the object or simply monitor it. They were flying around it, but some distance away. But it would just leave them for dead. It would just suddenly whoosh and take off. The object then lowered behind a group of pine trees known as the Grange. Several moments later, it rose out of the treed area, hovered, then turned sideways and vanished as quickly as it arrived. Likewise, the light aircraft all dispersed. In Westall, news of the sighting spread very quickly through town and curious locals would go to the area to see what all the fuss was about. One of the first on scene is engineering student Kevin Hurley who was pointed in the direction of the Grange, the treed area. My uncle rang me up about four o'clock to say, hey, guess what? The kids have seen a UFO at the school. And I go, wow. And he, then, then he told me that the UFO landed. So I thought, geez, I better get down there and have a look at this. The area we walked through was, was knee high grass. It wasn't this scrubby stuff like this. It was, and it was quite thick. The grass was flattened around, flattened down like this, right? 
And it was flattened out in a circular area as if something had twisted, had gone down and twisted on the ground a little bit to flatten the grass around in this circular fashion. Several other witnesses claimed to have seen the disc-like pattern in the grass, as if an object had landed and twisted. When Kevin Hurley returned the next day, he was approached by armed military personnel and was told to leave at once. This very aggressive chap appeared. He was either Army or Air Force, I'm not sure what, and said, go away, don't come here. He was extremely aggressive. There were a number of men also in these Army or Air Force uniforms going around the paddock analysing the ground with what looked like some sort of a Geiger counter device. Likewise, authorities, which the children and teachers describe as either Army or Air Force, demanded that eyewitnesses should keep tight-lipped and not discuss what they had seen. Children were punished by school officials if they spoke about it, and teachers were threatened with termination. Witnesses claimed that military personnel were analyzing the schoolyard using what appeared to be Geiger counters. Even though the local newspaper ran a full-page story on the event, the school and eyewitnesses remained silent. When students and eyewitnesses returned to the site of the mysterious circle in the grass, they found that the grass around the area was cut by a mower, and the area where the circle had been was purposely set ablaze. A local television station recorded a segment the day of the sighting and interviewed both students and teachers alike before a police officer and school official shut down the recording. The segment never aired, and the film canister containing the immediate eyewitness testimony of the day has gone missing. Similarly, notes and photographic evidence of the circle have gone missing from the files of the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society's archives. The Dandenong Journal writers Des Carroll and David Oakley, as well as government meteorological physicist Dr. F.A. Burson, attempted to follow the incident up with the school authorities, local residents, Morabaran Airport, the Department of Air, and the Army, but were told they knew nothing. This boy come running in saying, Mr. Greenwood, Mr. Greenwood, there's these things in the sky, there's these things in the sky. We looked up and we just saw this saucer type thing taking off. It wasn't a plane, it wasn't a balloon, it was nothing like that. A lot of the kids took off towards where it seemed to go. All the students were just running all over the place, uh, hysterical. Went to a high school as a, as a teaching situation, ceased. My girlfriend and I sat on the fence, climbed the fence, the school boundary. And we were crying, thinking it was the end of the world. Victor Sakruzny reports that he had witnessed the object within an arm's length. You could feel heat about a metre away coming from. It was pretty warm or hot, and then it just gradually lifted, lifted up, and then went off towards the pines. Victor was told that his memory of the event was simply his imagination. Many children were brought into the school offices and interviewed by men in suits, who appeared to be of Asian descent. That afternoon, our principal called a, a special um, assembly and told us all not to talk about it. I was prepped uh, to tell the students that what they'd seen didn't exist. We were told that we weren't allowed to speak to the media. I was called down to the headmaster's office and there were two men in the headmaster's office, very well-dressed gentlemen, um, in suits. 
they weren't introduced to me in person and I don't know where they came from. From my references now as an adult, I would say they were Asia. Then we went into, oh, and we suppose you think you saw a flying saucer. And I'm like, well, I didn't say that. I said I saw an object and, and we suppose you saw little green men. When I came out I think I burst into tears. They were certainly Australian government and I think it was part of their job to keep everything quiet. If you are intrigued by the Westall UFO incident, let me introduce you to a podcast devoted exclusively to the UFO phenomenon. My name is Ryan Sprague. When I was 12 years old, I saw something in the sky that I couldn't explain, and I've been searching for answers ever since. And now, I want you to join me on that search. From the Antica Podcast Network, this is the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. Every week, I bring you the latest news about UFOs, the paranormal, esoterica, and just plain weird. With audio docs, special guest interviews, debates, and on-site investigations, you'll never look at these topics the same. We'll agree, we'll argue, we'll laugh, we'll cry, but most importantly, we'll try to find answers. Available now on all major podcast outlets or at somewhereintheskies.com. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies. Now, back to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. In 2016, Studio 10 out of Melbourne, Australia, gathered eyewitnesses and researchers on a local broadcast. Let's begin with Joy and Terry in Melbourne. Can you tell us what you saw? Yes, Natasha. Um, I was out playing cricket on the Oval at the time and we noticed these three craft hovering above the school, um, which was a bit unusual. They definitely weren't aircraft. and. Then after about 10 minutes, we saw one go down into an area behind our school called the Grange, where we used to do our cross-country runs. So being a little bit of a rebel, as I was at school, um, I was one of the first to run through and jump over the fence and arrive at the Grange, and it was on the ground in front of me. The, the other two girls had arrived before me, and one was hysterical, Tanya, and the other girl had fainted. So I just looked at it and after a few minutes it just raised up above me, probably to about well, 12 feet, turned on its side and went zoom straight up into the air and disappeared almost instantly. And there were two other craft in the air at the time. Joy, did you see something similar and what were you thinking it was at that stage? Were you convinced it was a UFO? Look, uh, I didn't know what it was. I'd, yes, definitely a UFO. Um, I was actually in science class and we had a um, stu student had rung in and flung the door open and said, Mr Greenwood, Mr Greenwood, there's things in the sky, there's flying saucers in the sky. So we all ran down the corridor and out onto the oval and yes, there were flying saucers in the sky. I saw three of them, um, but it took me quite a while to sort of comprehend what I was looking at because I'd never seen anything like that before. Jackie, it's quite um, intriguing. Did you also see those flying saucers? I saw a flying saucer. I don't recall there being more than one. Um, but we were down the back, I was down the back of the oval with Tanya when we noticed it in the sky. 
Um, it did some manoeuvres which were very strange, which is why our attention was drawn to it in the first place. And then it came down over the Grange. We could see it coming down, so we took off after it. Uh, Tanya actually reached the craft, I believe. I didn't. Um, because she came back screaming towards me and then I ran back with her to the school. She got taken away in an ambulance and that was the last time I saw her. And, and can you tell us a bit more about these craft? What colour were they? How big were they? Did they actually land or were they just hovering above the ground? The craft I saw was silver in colour. It was round. It did come down on the ground. Even though I didn't see it on the ground, I saw the marks that it left um, later on that day, it could move incredibly fast and it could also s appear to stand still. When it took off from the other f aircraft that were buzzing it, um, it made them look as though they were at standstill. Right. And, and Shane, sceptics have dismissed the event as just the product of the fertile imagination of children. Uh, what's your response to that? Some sceptics have, and there are other sceptics, I think, who take a more serious look at a story like this, a story which has so much witness testimony. Uh, I'd like to begin by paying tribute to Joy and Terry and Jackie and all the other witnesses who have been brave enough to come forward and talk about this story. Ninety-six witnesses so far have been happy to talk to me about the flying saucer that they saw. 147 people have come forward and spoken to me about the circles in the paddocks that were left behind by the flying saucer. So if you just look at those numbers alone, you realise we're looking at something pretty important. Now, remember, when we talk about UFOs, obviously in the general social conscious consciousness, people think about extraterrestrial craft. UFOs simply means unidentified flying objects. We don't know what an extra, extraterrestrial spaceship, for example, would look like. Now, it just simply means something that was seen in the sky that nobody could easily identify. And I think we have to begin with that. Now, as interesting as a program as The X-Files is, and absolutely it is, I think this is a UFO story that all Australians need to uh, know about, need to take seriously. Can I ask what happened to the girl? You, um, you took her back to the school, the one that was hysterical. Is it Tanya? Mm -hmm. And um, she went into the hospital and then you went to visit her at her place and they said she didn't live there. That's yes, right. I, went to, I went to her house the following day and an English-speaking woman opened the door and said there had never been a Tanya living there. Now, the problem with that is that Tanya's parents didn't speak English to start with. I think they were Yugoslavian. So I'd been to this house a lot of times and then was told, no, sorry, you're mistaken. Oh, my God. That's so what's me... happened to her? Do you know if she disappeared? Have you had any contact with her? Do you know where she is and what, what happened? I have had no personal contact with her. I know one of the researchers has. She prefers to stay anonymous and not be involved in anything at all. She told the researcher that she had no recall of what had happened. And then there was a very odd story about her parents putting her in a convent for some reason that was to me, totally ridiculous. That's it. <laughs> Terry, we've seen drawings that look like a flying saucer and even two flying saucers. Can you describe for us what was there? Yes, um, it was about one and a half times the size of a normal um, family sedan. 
and it was round, silver coloured. There were all lights around the bottom of it, no windows. Um, it threw off a bit of a heat and it was making a low buzzing sound. Did any of you at all witness anyone inside these unidentified flying objects? Did you see anyone? No. 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 All right, Joy, Terry, Jackie and Shane, stay with us because we're going to chat with you more uh, right after this short break. Now, we've heard firsthand from these accounts, but Australian authorities are actually accused of covering up what really happened. So what's the truth? Don't go anywhere. We'll return in just a moment. Welcome back. Now, returning to our special examination this morning of the West Hall incident. Now, it happened 50 years ago when many people reported seeing a UFO land in suburban Melbourne. We're joined once again by Joy Clark and Terry Peck in Melbourne and in Brisbane, Jackie Argent. Now, they were just school children at the time and clearly remember what they saw. Also joining us from Canberra is principal researcher for this specific UFO incident, Shane Ryan. Joy, to you firstly, now, you were interviewed by journalists, reporters at the time. What has happened to your story since then and do you think there has been a cover-up? Oh, absolutely. Um, that film, I was interviewed by Channel 9 and at the front of the school and a man walked up to me. He was in blue, so he may have been Air Force or perhaps police, I'm not sure. Put his um, hand on my shoulder and told me to stop talking and go back into the school and then turned around to the film, uh, the cameraman and the reporter and told them both to go away. But previous to that happening, um, not long after the sighting, um, the army arrived opposite the school in three um, jeeps and jumped out of the back and they were in uh, camouflage gear and all that sort of stuff. So they were sort of out the school for quite a while. And then we had a, a special assembly. We were all called to a special assembly and told that we hadn't seen anything. It was a weather balloon. We're all massively hysterical. Don't talk about it. If you talk about it, you'll get into trouble. And I got detention because I had been interviewed by oh. Channel 9. Joy, let me ask you a little bit more about that. What, what would you say, because there might be people listening to your story uh, today and being a little sceptical and thinking, you're, you're a little girl, sometimes memories can change even though we're convinced that we see a particular thing and perhaps it was a weather balloon or some um, other sort of aircraft and not necessarily a UFO. No, definitely UFO. I'd never seen anything like it before and we were used to seeing aircraft because we weren't that far away from Moorabbin Airport. So we would quite often see the little planes fly around. So we was nothing like I've ever seen ever since either. Just how old were you? Twelve and a half. Okay. And how soon after you saw the flying saucers did the uh, army and/or possibly air force personnel show up? How quickly did they get um, there? I reckon probably 25, 30 minutes. All right. And, and Shane, do you think um, that this could have been uh, some kind of piece of military equipment or? Uh, some other type of um, you know, apparatus that's perfectly innocent? Well, I take a, an agnostic view of, of UFOs and this particular UFO story included because we simply don't know. We don't know what UFOs are. But I think it's fairly obvious that it's difficult to find simply a, a prosaic, mundane explanation for what so many of these witnesses saw. It's easier for us to say 
what it wasn't. If you look at the evidence, if you sit down with the hundreds of witness testimonies, we can say fairly confidently this obviously wasn't an aeroplane, it wasn't a helicopter, it wasn't a drone, it wasn't a kite, and I don't mean to prick anyone's balloon, but it wasn't, to me, quite obviously, a meteorological balloon or anything like that. So then we're left with the mystery, what was it? Now remember, when we talk about UFO stories, it's often these days lights in the skies, people out in the outback seeing something while they're alone. This happened in broad daylight, literally hundreds of witnesses and not only did the flying saucer fly low over two schools in front of all these students and local workers and residents and some teachers it landed it was either on the ground or close to the ground for several minutes and in addition to that there was this incredible response to this incident as so joy has shame. mentioned police military and more you, I understand you're a little sceptical at the start before you investigated this. Sure. And, and you seem also to be saying you're impressing that it's an unidentified flying object. And then you're calling it a flying saucer. Is it, do you think it's an alien craft? Do you think aliens were in there? Or are you sort of playing it safe here? Well, I'm trying to be rational. I'm trying to be logical. I'm trying to be fair to the evidence. I often like to refer to it as a flying source because that's what it was called at the time. Mm -hmm. It was called that because that's what it looked like. A saucer turned upside down on another saucer or bowl. That was the shape that it presented. It was an unidentified flying object. It was seemingly a solid metallic looking object that flew that nobody could identify. Now I think that's as much as we can say but what is really interesting is the level of response to whatever this was and I don't know what it was but certainly the government authorities the Royal Australian Air Force the Army the Civil Defence Organisation all responded on this day why did they respond and why in addition to that is there no information about this incident publicly available in any of the government archives they're some of the interesting questions Terry, over the years you've heard what authorities have said about this incident. How do you feel about what they say about it? Well, look, it's, it's hard to know. Jessica's right in a way. Over the many years our memories do change a little bit, but it is burned into my memory. Um, I know what I saw and no matter what anyone says, I know that it was something very unusual and the way it took off at that speed, I out very much if there was anything in that day that could take off like that. Mm. Shane, you claim you've spoken to more than a hundred witnesses. Why do you think there was a cover-up, it seems, at very, very high levels? Well, that's the $94 million question, I guess. We do know that a very high-ranking public servant from the Department of Supply was dispatched to Westall that day. He investigated. And after that wonderful Australian documentary, Westall 66, a suburban UFO mystery, was aired on Australian television in 2010, his daughter contacted me and said, thank you, thank you for having that documentary made because my father was there that day. Mm. And he suffered for what he saw. And she and her brother, I've spoken to them both, really believe that his untimely death just four years later was connected with the stress that was applied to him because he tried to get answers to what happened. Why the cover-up? What could it possibly have been 50 years ago that would now 
be a threat to national security or anybody's reputation or any alliance with another country? Is that possible after 50 years? I think we need the answers. So, Jackie, do you think you'll ever find out about the, the mystery? No, I doubt it very much. Um, initially, I would have said it was some sort of test aircraft. I fell in line with that theory. But there's never been an aircraft, to my knowledge, today that can do what that did. So... Mm -hmm. so sorry, I've had a question for you, but I just think... Um, are you glad to have been able to speak out about this after so long? Do you feel relief? Um, no, not really. Mm. <laughs> I, think the, I think the experience actually contributed to my, my demeanour as an adult. Um, the way that I handle situations and the way that I respond in a critical situation in particular. So the bullying that I underwent with those men that came to the school, which was definitely bullying now, has made me more resolved in the way I've lived my life. Is that the same for all of you? Yes and no. Um, I think I've gone a little bit the opposite, where I've become more outspoken and I don't take um, people's criticism and trying to tell me that I was crazy because I know what I saw. So I won't, nothing will change my resolve. It's in my brain forever. Thank, well, thank you. you so much for sharing your thoughts and your stories with us this morning. We really appreciate it. Joy Clark and Terry Peck in Melbourne. Jackie Arden in Brisbane and Shane Ryan in Canberra. We genuinely really, really appreciate your time and for sharing your stories. Thank you so much. In the early investigations of the incident, skeptics claimed the children, the teachers, the businessmen and women, the farmers and all the other witnesses simply had a mass delusion coupled with hysteria and childlike imaginations brought on by the decade previous, who was obsessed with flying saucers and pop culture. As years went on, skeptics began to go beyond this theory as it held little weight. They began to investigate the incident with a preconceived conclusion, basing the event on a secret military weapon or aircraft. Investigators were told by the military and by nearby air control towers that no planes were reported in the vicinity, including, as you will remember, the five or so light aircraft alongside the strange objects at Westall. According to the military and airport radar, they were simply imagined by the witnesses. Investigators believe they had finally solved the Westall UFO incident once and for all, and in 2014 decided that the craft was actually a top-secret weather balloon. Although federal and state government agencies refused to comment about the 1966 Westall incident at the time, skeptics now believe that what landed at Westall was an errant high-altitude balloon used to monitor radiation levels after the controversial Merolinga nuclear tests. The Highball program was a joint U.S.-Australian initiative to monitor atmospheric radiation levels using large silver balloons equipped with sensors between 1960 and 1969. Documents held by the National Archives and former Department of Supply indicate one test balloon launched from Mildura may have been blown off course and came down in Clayton South in a paddock near Westall High School alarming and baffling hundreds of eyewitnesses, including teachers and students. The flight, however, was not officially recorded, 
if it indeed happened at all. The data logs and flight logs for the flight are blank, so this is speculation at best. If this was a weather balloon, as some protest, why then are there several witnesses who claim the objects could hover motionless and then fly at incredible speeds? They also claim the objects had lights and they produced heat and a low buzzing sound emanating from their core. If it was a weather balloon, why was there up to three seen in the same vicinity? How did a weather balloon land, make markings on the grass, and then take off very fast and out of sight within seconds? If it was a weather balloon, why then have all the witnesses who have studied photos of weather balloons be convinced 100% that what they saw, what they experienced that day, did not appear to have any resemblance to a weather balloon whatsoever. Weather balloons could not be the reasons behind all the UFO phenomena in Australia in 1966. As you probably figured out, UFO phenomena seems to happen in waves, and in 1966, Australia had a large number of UFO sightings and strange reports. At about 9 a.m. on January 19, 1966, George Pedley was driving a tractor heading south along a narrow track on Albert Pinnace's sugarcane farm. The weather that morning was calm, with the sun shining at approximately 30 to 40 degrees east. When he was approximately 25 yards from Horseshoe Lagoon, Pedley heard above the noise of the tractor a loud hissing sound, quote, like air escaping from a tire. The tractor tire seemed okay to me, so I drove on. Headley said. Suddenly, an object rose out of the swamp. When I glanced at it, it was already 30 feet above the ground. It was a large, gray, saucer-shaped object, convex at the top and bottom, and measured some 25 feet across and 9 feet high. While I watched, it rose another 30 feet, spinning very fast. Then it made a shallow dive and took off with tremendous speed. Climbing at an angle of 45 degrees, it disappeared within seconds in a southwesterly direction. I saw no portholes or antennas, and there was no sign of life either in or about the ship. Headley reported that there were several round nests on the property where the object either landed or took off from. The Royal Australian Air Force investigated the site and wrote, quote, a clearly defined near-circular depression remained in evidence in swamp grass at the point from which the object was seen rising and measuring about 32 feet by 25 feet wide. The grass was flattened in clockwise curves to water level within the circle, and the reeds had been uprooted from the mud. There was no scorching of the grass or surrounding trees, and the observer stated that there was no smell of combustion. End quote. Sound familiar? On April 2nd, 1966, at 2 p.m., an Australian businessman, James Cabell, went outside of his house to take a few pictures. He owned an early Polaroid camera loaded with instant roll film that hadn't been used in a couple of years. The film was long past its expiry date, but he thought he'd nonetheless try and finish the roll by taking a few snapshots in his garden. However, shortly after he went out, his attention was drawn to something unusual in the sky. He observed a silver metallic object that rapidly came in his direction and briefly hovered near his house. 
At that point, he had the presence of mind to raise the Polaroid camera and take a quick snapshot. The photo would reveal what appears to be a sideways disc-like metallic object, similar to what witnesses at Westall reported when the object left the Grange wooded area and turned sideways. We'll post up the photo on our Facebook page so you can see it for yourself. On April 4, 1966, Ron Sullivan was driving by car at night along Bitumen Road in St. Arnaud, Victoria in a 1965 Ford Falcon sedan at approximately 60 miles per hour. The sky was very clear. There was no moonlight and there was a slight breeze. He first saw a light and thought it was the rear lights of a tractor in a paddock. As he got closer, he saw a light that lifted off the ground. This light had tubes of colored lights. These lights were all the colors of the spectrum, according to Ron Sullivan. The tubular colored lights were coming off of it. Then Ron saw a disc or cone 10 to 15 feet in diameter. And the tubes were about four to five inches in diameter that were coming off of it. The police determined that the position of the object in the paddock could have been 20 to 30 feet from the road since a depression was found in the paddock located that distance from the road. The disc was estimated to be 20 to 30 feet above the ground at one point. The most unusual aspect was that the car headlight beams bent to the right towards this light formation as if they were magnetized. Sergeant Sooty of the police force found a ground marking in the paddock, a circular depression in the ground, four to five feet in diameter and seven to eight inches deep. These measurements were smaller than what Sullivan would have estimated from the size of the disc. There was no human or animal markings around the depression. The soil inside seemed to have been rippled in a clockwise direction. Again, sound familiar? Do you still think these could be all weather balloons? In 2010, Westall 66, a suburban UFO mystery, directed and edited by Rosie Jones, was released documenting what happened in the Westall suburb of Melbourne in 1966. Westall High School was the center of the biggest mass UFO sighting in Australia, yet the event was deliberately suppressed. Jones and her team try to find out why. The documentary will be available in our added bonus content in podcast form. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Maddia Capelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.